And will you stand as you're reaching for your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew 8, we'll be reading verses 28 through 34 as Pastor Bruce continues in the series, Follow Me, today, Fear or Faith, and our text is Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. When he had come to the other side, to the country of Gernesinus, there he met two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away to the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this series, and you called us to follow you and pray that we would have open hearts and minds to learn how we could, um, to better follow you and to, to live according to your will and purposes for our life. Be with our pastor as he brings us this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Zach said we're uh, continuing in our sermon series, our fall series, based on the words of Jesus that we're calling, Follow Me. And uh, as we follow Jesus in Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10 in particular, we come to a rather bizarre story about two demonized men from the tombs. Suffice it to say, almost everything in this story is a little bizarre. Consider two men approach Jesus in a rather shocking condition. Jesus agrees to a surprising cure, and the townspeople come to Jesus with a, a very strange request. And so what we see in this story that Zach read for us here are really three worlds, if I can describe it this way, three worlds coming together, three worlds colliding together. You have the underworld of evil spirits. You have the visible world of human experience and the upper world of divine power. Evidently, this encounter made quite an impression on the disciples because it's found in three of the four Gospels. It's not only found here in the book of Matthew, or the Gospel of Matthew, but you can also read about it in the Gospel of Mark and Luke as well. And so the disciples, that is Jesus' disciples, his closest followers, never forgot this story. They never forgot how Jesus rescued two men from the tombs, two demon-possessed men, and restored them to new life. Now, as we kind of step back from this story, let's be a little honest with ourselves. This is one of those stories that, I don't know about you, but it captures our attention. I mean, who isn't fascinated by a story that includes demons and pigs, right? At the same time, this story also provokes several questions that I will only deal with very briefly and it probably provokes several questions that I, I won't deal with at all, especially those questions that you may have about demons or the devil, uh, the, 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 just that whole idea there. 
Because when we read this story in the context of Matthew 8, 9, and 10, what we begin to realize is this is not so much a story about demons as it is a story about Jesus Christ. It's a story about Jesus and his authority to rule over demons. And so for this reason, I hope that our our fascination with this story, our fascination with demons, perhaps even our curiosity about demons and the evil spirit world, I hope it doesn't overshadow our focus on Jesus Christ here this morning. Because what Matthew shows us here in this story is not by accident. Matthew is trying to show us something on purpose. He wants us to see, yes, another miracle, but it also has another lesson for us to learn. Notice this coming up on the screen in your notes. And that is Jesus has authority over demons. Over the last several weeks, as we have followed the life of Jesus, we have witnessed his authority in a variety of different ways. The miracles display Jesus' power over and over again. We saw that Jesus displays his authority over disease when he heals the sick. Next, we saw that Jesus displays his authority over disciples when when he challenges two uh, people to count the cost of following him. Last week, we saw that Jesus displays his authority over disaster when he calms the storm. And now, here we come to this story, this miracle, this healing, and it teaches us another lesson. We're going to see that Jesus now has authority over demons when he restores two demon-possessed men. I like what John tells us in 1 John 3.8. He says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what Jesus is giving a foretaste of right here. We're reminded in 1 John 4.4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you, that is the Spirit of God, is greater than the one who is in the world. In other words, Jesus, what Matthew wants us to understand here this morning, Jesus is more powerful and he has more authority than any demons in this world and even the devil himself. In this story, we see a a legion of demons, as um, Mark and Luke tell us, who evidently violently possess two men. And yet, get this, at the same time, they are deathly afraid of Jesus Christ here. Knowing that Jesus has absolute authority over them, they plead for Jesus to cast them into a herd of pigs. And Jesus does. I love the fact that these demons, they hate and they loathe everything there is about Jesus in this story. And yet, they are powerless to do one little thing apart from his sovereign permission. Please know that Satan and his minions can do nothing in this world apart from God's permission. The Old Testament book of Job teaches this very vividly. Yes, Satan is a roaring lion, Peter tells us. A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But understand, he is a lion on a leash. And Jesus holds the leash. So demons do not have all authority. 
What Matthew is showing us is Jesus is the one who has all authority. Do you see how encouraging this is? We should be filled with confidence. We should be filled with comfort. We should be filled with encouragement. Do you see how all these stories about Jesus' power encourage us not to fear while living in this world? Yes, we live in a world that is full of evil and suffering and pain, and as a result, many of us live in fear and anxiety, worry and wonder what's going to happen in this situation, what's going to happen in that situation. And when that happens, when you begin to fear, when anxiety begins to swell up within your heart, I want to urge you to remember what we have been seeing throughout Matthew chapter 8. And that is the authority of Jesus Christ. He alone has authority to rule over everything in this world. And I realize, even this morning, there are lots of fears. There are many struggles in different areas of people's lives represented all over this auditorium. And I hope you will invite Jesus' authority to impact your life in a way that triumphs over your fear. And I hope this story brings one more lesson to that, one more hope to your heart in that regard. Because what we see in the story is really a contrast of sorts. Notice this with me here, number one. The demons have fear because of their, get this, belief. They have fear because of their belief. Jesus has now just come to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Gadarenes. Jesus has come to this area to rest. He's come to seek relief from the, from the crowds of people, what we have been calling the fans of Jesus, due to his, his fame, due to their own personal curiosity, because of his miraculous healings, when he is suddenly approached by two demon-possessed men. Matthew mentions that there are two of them. When you read the story in Mark and Luke, they tend to focus on the more dominant one, or the leader of the two, the one who, who claims to have a legion of demons in him, the one who speaks for the both of them. We don't necessarily know how these two men came to be demon-possessed. The Bible doesn't tell us. And so it's useless for us to even speculate on that. What we can say for certain is that demons are, are fallen angels, or spirit beings who carry out the evil strategy of Satan here on earth. They were originally good angels created by God to serve God, but they followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God. And so now their purpose, just as it was in this story, as it is even today, is entirely evil and destructive. Notice how the Bible describes these two men in the grip of evil. Matthew says that these two demon-possessed men were so fierce or so violent that no one could pass that way. In other words, no one could walk where they were. No one could walk by them. They were so fierce and violent. Mark describes the scene in much more detail, focusing on the more dominant man in Mark 5, verses 3 through 5. It's in your notes there. Look at what it says. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So in other words, the townspeople have tried to control him, but they failed. 
For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Wow, pretty descriptive. Pretty powerful these demons hold in their influence over this man. Luke tells us in Luke 8, verse 27, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Now, again, this is, this is the most severe case of demon possession that you will read in all the Bible. It seems everything that might restrain evil or even reign in wickedness is gone in this area of the Gadarenes. This man's condition, or both of these men's condition, we could say is so miserable, but in particular this one man, that he acts as if he only wants to destroy himself. And it looks as if the goal of the demons is to erase the very image of God from this man's life. But everything changes when Jesus steps on the shore, when he gets out of the boat, and he is encountered by these two men. At the same time the two demon-possessed men approach Jesus, they cry out, and this is ironic, as they're approaching Jesus, they cry out, stay away from us. To be more precise, they cry out in verse 29. Look at it. Look what it says in your Bibles. We're now Matthew 8, verse 29. And they cry out, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now you can almost hear the fear in that cry, can't you? And you hear the fear in their cry because of their belief. Now their belief, let me tell you, it is worthy to take notice of. And so let me show you a few things about their belief here. Number one, first of all, the demons know who Jesus is. They know who Jesus is. The shocking fact, and one worth thinking about, is that these demons know who Jesus is. Is. They know that Jesus is the Son of God, they know that He is the Messiah, and they know that He is the King who has come to rescue people from their sins. And so when Jesus approaches these two demon-possessed men, they are quick to recognize Him. Now you contrast that with what we learned last Sunday. Just a short time ago, the disciples in the boat were marveling at Jesus and were asking each other about who this man is. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy that calms the storms? Who is this one that is in the boat with us? And yet these demons know exactly who he is. I find it somewhat ironic that their question, who is this man, is answered by two demon-possessed men. He's the Son of God. Both Mark and Luke point out that the one man, that one of the men actually fell at the feet of Jesus because according to James chapter 2:19, even the demons believe and they tremble before the Son of God. So get this. Demons are not atheists. They know who Jesus is. 
even though they don't worship Jesus and they don't follow Jesus and they don't obey Jesus. Except when Jesus now commands them to go, they will obey. So they know who Jesus is, but it gets even better than that. Look at this, number two. The demons know the final outcome. They know the final outcome. In other words, the demons know what's going to happen. They know the final outcome of history. Apparently, the demons know that there's coming a day when Jesus will hold them accountable as their judge. And they are worried that his presence now means that it's going to happen today. That's why they asked Jesus at the very end of verse 29, have you come here to torment us before the time? And you go, before what time? Before the time of judgment, which means they know their doom. They know that in the end, there's no hope for them. Now, don't miss what's implied in their question. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They are pleading for what in this question? They're pleading for more time. That's odd. They don't plead for mercy. They plead for a delay of what they already know is inevitable. They seem to think Jesus has no right to trouble them now before the judgment day. But their doom will come soon enough since God has no mercy for fallen angels. Now, there's an application here. The, this right here, these demons, they illustrate that, that we will never, by ourselves, in ourselves, repent and plead for mercy. Apart from God's saving grace intervening into our lives, we as rebels are not repentant apart from God. We are doomed without hope in our sins. God is the one who prompts us to turn to Him. And apart from those promptings of His grace, we will never repent. And so if you are here this morning, and you're a Christ follower, and you have turned from your sin, and asked for the forgiveness of your sins, man, cry out in thankfulness that God has intervened into your life. Because apart from that, we would be hopeless just like these demons are. We learn another thing about the belief of these demons. Number three, the demons know the authority of Jesus. They know the authority of Jesus. These demons know that Jesus has the authority to dispose of them at his will. That's why after seeing a herd of pigs, they beg Jesus in verse 31, if you cast us out, and they're not saying that in like, Jesus, if you can cast us out, is no, you're going to cast us out, and since you are going to cast us out, Permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And Jesus grants the request. In fact, with one word, Jesus displays his authority, his power, when he simply says, go. When the demons lead the two men and enter the herd of pigs, Matthew tells us at the end of verse 32, look at it. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. When you go over to Luke chapter 8, verse 31, it tells us that the demons asked Jesus not to send them into the abyss, which is the final place of Satan's punishment. The demons prefer the pigs to the abyss, but when the pigs rush into the lake, it becomes their abyss. Now, 
again, I admit with you, I agree with you, this baffling series of events, it reminds us really how little we know about demons. And it raises several perplexing questions. I mean, how many of you do not have a question running through your mind about now? Such as, why did the demons want to enter the pigs? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly why. But one possibility is because they wanted to destroy the pigs, perhaps because they knew that that, the destruction of the pigs, would cause Jesus problems. The more perplexing question, though, is, why did Jesus grant their request? Why not just send the, the demons into the abyss? Again, the Bible doesn't tell us, but this much is clear. We know this from what the Bible does tell us here, that the point of the story is not to destroy the demons, but to deliver these two men from the demons and their power over them. We can also say that by sending the demons into the pigs, Jesus was providing proof positive that he has authority over demons. When the townspeople saw those dead pigs floating in the lake and the two men restored to life, let me tell you, no one could deny Jesus' power. There's no denial of it. Beyond that, this story is a lesson in the value of human life. By his own actions, Jesus is saying that two men are worth far more than a herd of pigs. As you can imagine, almost immediately word begins to spread about the remarkable restoration of the two demonized men in the floating herd of deviled ham. You're supposed to laugh there. I guess it didn't go over. But surprisingly, let me tell you, this miracle, this healing, this restoration of two men is not greeted with joy by everyone in the region. Look what Matthew tells us in verse 33. He says, Then those who kept them, that is the herd of pigs, fled. And they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Now you would think the townspeople would be rejoicing that Jesus has just healed two demon-possessed men. No way. They wanted Jesus to solve their problems but save their pigs. So the story ends with verse 34. Look at it. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Now let that just kind of soak in. Let that grip your heart here for a minute. How tragic. This has got to be one of the saddest verses in all the Bible here. Jesus came to bring life, but these people chose death. Jesus came to bring freedom, but they chose bondage. He came to bring life, but the people chose darkness instead. You'd think the townspeople here would be grateful that the two dangerous men have been radically healed and restored to new life by Jesus, but it's not so. The townspeople, they reject Jesus. They ask him to leave, go away, depart from us. Their response can really be summed up in two words. 
anger and scared. They're angry at Jesus and they're scared of Jesus all at the same time. In fact, look at this. It's in your notes. The townspeople were angry at the loss of their pigs. When the townspeople looked at the two men, there's no doubt that a miracle had, had occurred. They can't deny the miracle of these two men. But evidently, the pigs mattered more than these men. But to Jesus, these men mattered more than the pigs. And they couldn't, they couldn't handle the transformation of these two men at the expense of their pigs. So instead of rejoicing, they are angry at Jesus. Now, if the death of the pigs offends you, consider this with me for a moment. The final cost for defeating evil lay not in the death of, of imperfect animals, but in the death of the one perfect man, Jesus himself. Yes, the herdsmen here suffered loss. There's no denial of that in the story here. They suffered loss for the healing of the two demon-possessed men, but Jesus, get this, he suffered far more. Jesus bore our sins and the, our punishment on the cross. And yet the townspeople are still angry over the loss of the pigs at the expense of the restoration of two men. Notice number two, the second. They're not only angry, but they're scared. They are scared of the power of Jesus. Think about it, these two men that are healed were men that the townspeople could not control themselves. They tried to chain them up, they tried to, to tie them up, and they, they could not. They could not subdue them, they could not control them. And then one day, Jesus comes strolling into town. He comes leaping off the boat, if you will, and with one word, Jesus restores these men who were out of control. Talk about fear. Mark tells us that when the townspeople saw the demon-possessed men restored, they were afraid. You say, but why? Well, I think one reason they were scared is because they didn't like it when Jesus disturbed the status quo in their region, in their lives. They weighed the evidence, and they concluded that the healing cost too much. So they said, would you please leave, sir? We'd rather have a few madmen running around than to have our pigs destroyed. Now, it's rather easy for us to be critical here at this point in the story. But we might have done the same thing if we were part of that townspeople. Even today, many people are open to Jesus as long as he kind of keeps his distance. But when he comes close, we kind of get a little too uncomfortable. Why? Because Jesus calls us to repent of our sins. Jesus calls us to follow him. And following him often requires costly decisions. Decisions that require sacrifice on our part. Decisions that disrupt the status quo of our lives. And so... So many people who, who claim they want to follow Jesus, they really prefer the gentle Jesus of the children's storybooks, but not the powerful Jesus of the Gospels here that are presented in the Bible. Because it's a Jesus who demands our absolute allegiance. Why? Because He has absolute authority in the world. And this is another proof of that. 
In the end, the townspeople asked Jesus to leave because he was bad for their business. You know what? They were right. They were right on. Because when, when you and I, when we submit our lives to the authority of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, it will never be business as usual again. The power of Jesus should never drive us to beg Him to leave. Rather, the power of Jesus should drive us to bow our knee to Him and to submit our lives to Him and to follow Him with all allegiance. But anger and fear dried the request of the townspeople that Jesus leave their region. You know what? What does Jesus do? He leaves. You go to the first verse of Matthew chapter 9, which we'll look at next Sunday, and Jesus gets back in the boat and goes back over the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus doesn't stay where he isn't wanted. And as far as we know, he never went back to this region again. Now that's something to think about here. Because when Jesus calls, when Jesus intervenes into your life, when he calls you to follow him, listen, we better respond. Don't think he is obliged to come back calling you again and again and again. Now, what a bizarre story to say the least, right? On one hand, when you look at this picture, big overview of it, on one hand, it is a picture of triumph when Jesus restores two demon-possessed men. Is that not triumphant? That's something to rejoice about. And yet, on the other hand, it's a picture of tragedy when the townspeople reject Jesus. It seems the only ones in the story who believe are who? The demons. These demons have fear because of their belief. They know who Jesus is, and they are scared to death of him. Demons believe in Jesus and know the authority of Jesus, and that's why they were deathly afraid of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 8. But we are just the opposite of this. Notice point number two. We often have fear in our hearts because of our unbelief. Let's be honest here. We oftentimes struggle with fear because we lack the faith of the demons here in this story. Does that make sense? Are you kind of following me here with this logic? These demons, get this, they, they, they knew Jesus. They knew his authority. They knew their final outcome and they were filled with fear. But for us as Christ followers, it should be just the opposite. Know Jesus and we should have no fear in our hearts. And here's why. When you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, there's no fear. Look at this. First of all, we would have no reason to fear if we believed what these demons believed about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Man, Matthew has been showing us here that he's the very Son of God with authority over disease, over disaster, over disciples. And now, he shows us he's the Son of God who has authority over demons. And absolutely nothing can touch us apart from God's sovereign power and his sovereign will. Do you know what this means? Do you realize the implications of this? 
Do you, do you understand how this should radically impact our lives today, how we live in this world? Notice this. Because we are the most secure people in the world because we are in the hands of the one who has all authority in the world. Listen, and please listen to me carefully. Our security, your security, is not based on how big or how small your house is or how good your job is. Our security is not based on how stable our economy is in this country. It's not based on who our president is, or who is in Congress. It's not based on how long the government will be shut down and reopen up or whatever you want to call it. Listen, as God's children, and when I say God's children, those of us who have embraced the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have repented of our sins, and we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, and now we have been transferred into the family of God. For those of us that can claim that, listen, we are secure simply because we are in the hands of the very one who has all authority in the world, and he cares for us. He watches over us. He protects us. He gives us promises, as we learned last Sunday, that he will always be with us to the very end of the age. As God is committed to providing everything we need in a world, yes, that is full of evil and suffering as we have seen. It's a world that's full of disease and sickness and death and demons. Yes, it is all of that. And yet in spite of that, God gives us everything to be more than just keeping our heads above water. And yes, I understand there are times when it's, it feels like that. There are realities of that. We have no reason to fear when we know Jesus as our King. And He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords in our lives. So as Jesus asked His disciples in the boat, it probably deserves to be asked again, why do you fear, O oh, you of little faith? The demons had fear because of their unbelief. We often have fear because of our, I mean, the demons had fear because of their belief. We often have it for the opposite reason. Because we don't believe enough. We don't have enough faith. We need to ask God to increase our faith. And so let me bring the story to a close by encouraging you to welcome the power of Jesus, His authority into our own lives. Notice this. Jesus has the power to rescue us from sin and restore us to new life in Him. Aren't you thankful for that? Man, if you've experienced that already, you should be shouting hallelujah. The good news is Jesus died and rose again to rescue us from the very grip of sin and to restore us to new life in Him. And if we trust in Jesus, He will exercise His power over sin on our behalf. And so what we see in this story now, the healing of these two demon-possessed men, get this, it is simply a picture, it's a foretaste 
It's a foreshadowing of the healing that Jesus brings to all who suffer from sin's power. The healing Jesus performed for these two men is available even today. Listen, it's not limited just to the Gospels and this story right here. Jesus offers that healing even now. Listen to how the Bible describes one of these men's radical change. It's amazing. Look at it. Notice it in your notes. Mark 5, verse 15 says, When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Luke 8.35 says, Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. And notice, notice his change. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. What a glorious picture that is. He's clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. This story teaches that even if your life is far out of control. Jesus has the power to bring it under control. Jesus has the power to bring restoration to your life. If your life is a mess, if your life is out of control, let me encourage you to ask Jesus to rescue you. Admit to Him. I can't, I can't change on my own. I need help. I can't do this in my own power. And then cry out for His saving grace. Cry out for His healing mercy. Run to the cross and ask Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You this morning as desperate, needy people. Lord, we need You to intervene. We need Your Word to penetrate our hearts. And we need Your Spirit to work as only he can work. And so, Lord, even now, we, we ask that you would do that, that you would speak to each heart here this morning, and you would encourage us all through the truth of your word about Jesus Christ. And, Lord, those that are here that need healing, that they would run to you, they would seek out, they would admit and repent of sin, they would cry for help. They would cry out for your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy. And perhaps that describes you. Let me, here's even something you can pray. You can pray something like this. You can put it in your own words, but it could be like this. Lord Jesus, there is sin in my life, sin that will ultimately destroy me if it goes unchecked. I believe that you are the Son of God who defeated all power of sin through your death and resurrection. That grants you power over the powers of sin and brokenness in my life. I trust in your power and love today. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins and deliver me from its power beginning today. Amen. Lord, we ask that you would do that kind of work in someone's life even now. And we would humble ourselves before you. That we would bow our knee and submit our lives to you in order to follow you as fully devoted followers. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Terry's going to come and sing during our response time here. And she's going to sing a, a 
a special. Kirk's going to play. And I'm asking that while Terry sings, you use this time to respond to God. You use this time to, to pray to him, to bring your fears, your struggles, your pains, your hurts to the throne of grace. And you cry out in every, any way you need to. After Terry's done singing, Kirk's going to continue to play. And that's when those of us who are Christ followers were invited to come at one of these four stations in the auditorium and participate in communion. You may take the bread, you may take the cup back to your seat. And of course, during this time, we're simply reminding ourselves and we're reflecting on the great and ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin and to restore us to new life. And so the bread that you take and the juice that you take represents his broken body and his shed blood when he died on the cross. And it reminds us once again who our Lord is and what he has done for us, what he is doing for us even now and yet will do for us when he returns. And so as you participate in communion, man, give thanks for his sacrifice in your own life and cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, come, because it can't be soon enough.